Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. My guests today are Elisabeth Colbert and Per Larsons. Elisabeth is an American journalist, author and visiting fellow at Williams College. She's best known for her Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History. And as an observer and commentator on the environment for the New Yorker magazine. Her latest book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. Per is the sustainability director at Rangsells, a family-owned recycling business founded in 1881 that today leads the transition into a circular economy, transforming waste into resources to secure the access to raw materials for society. The reason I invited them to Transformers was that Elizabeth wrote an incredible article about phosphorus for the New Yorker magazine and Paris company Rangsells provides a solution to the problem raised in the article. Welcome to Transformers. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Elizabeth, this summer has reminded us on the ongoing climate crisis. What is your reflection as a journalist? Well, it's been a very grim summer all all around the world. Um, We're right now in the U.S., you know, sort of multiple weather slash climate related disasters unfolding, you know, in real time. Um, I think, you know, it's to use the terrible cliche, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wake up call. Is anyone waking up? I, I'm not convinced, unfortunately. Hmm. The article that you wrote in the New Yorker, phosphorus save our way of life and now threaten to end it. It's a part of the climate crisis. Can you explore your findings in the article, which is based on two books that you may will mention too? Yeah, I mean, these these were books that looked at, um, I suppose you could say an under uh, appreciated element of modern life, which is phosphorus. Um, we depend on it uh, phosphorus fertilizer for, you know, to feed now 8 billion people on planet Earth. Um, Phosphorus is a very interesting um, element, I guess you would say. And, you know, phosphate rich rocks, which is where we get this phosphorus fertilizer from, they're only found in certain select parts of the world. And the vast majority of them at this point right now of the known reserves are in Morocco. Uh, and are mined under, uh, in some cases, pretty um, bad conditions. So it's a kind of politically complicated situation, but it's a geopolitically complicated situation, but it also uh, has many people worried on both sides of the equation. One, do we have a supply, adequate supply of phosphorus to take us into the future? And two, what happens when that phosphorus runs off our fields and into uh, basically waterways, either freshwater systems or 
or saltwater systems, it has a tremendously deleterious effect. So we're really changing, you know, in addition to changing the carbon cycle, which is the cause of climate change, uh, and the nitrogen cycle, uh, which is creating these huge uh, marine dead zones, we are changing the phosphorus cycle very dramatically. And that also could have potentially very dramatic consequences for the entire planet. It was a little bit of a wake-up call uh, when I read the article. And, and Per, uh, what was your reaction? Yes, I happened to read the article by myself in New York because I was there moderating a session at the UN Water Conference about phosphorus. And I totally agree. And the problem is that the world doesn't really understand the consequence of this unsustainable way of dealing with the phosphorus. Today we are, to be honest, we are flushing it into our rivers. And it ends up in our lakes and then, of course, in our oceans. And not even the Atlantic is big enough to cope with the phosphorus waste. Uh, it was obvious this spring when the algae bloom in the Sargasso Sea was bigger than the US is wide. It is a long story, this, uh, Elizabeth. You know, people sort of in, didn't know, obviously, that crops needed, you know, phosphorus, but they've known for a long time that when you add certain, um, you know, soil amendments, let's call them that politely, uh, you know, the crops do better. And one big source of phosphorus historically uh, was bird, you know, poop, uh, guano, uh, which comes from the word in Quechua um, from, you know, South, South America, the South American um, uh, indigenous language. And um, one of the first Europeans to, uh, to, to see that they, the indigenous people were using this guano was uh, Alexander von Humboldt, who came across uh, shipments of guano when he was in Peru uh, all the way back in, I think it was 1804. And took some back to Europe with him, and that set off a sort of chain of events. It has been also some influence from the uh, political sector to intervene and, and uh, regulate uh, this type of trade that uh, has been developed. Yeah, I mean, there was there's something called um, the, the U.S. Congress in the 1850s. There was really a guano craze that sort of... Um, you know, erupted, I suppose, when people realized that, that, that guano, once again, they didn't realize it was a good source of phosphorus, but they realized it was a good fertilizer. And American farmers uh, wanted to get their hands on some. And the U.S. Congress passed something that's known as the Guano Act. And it allowed, it, it just said, you can seize, any American citizen can seize an island. Guano tends to build up on these islands where seabirds are, are roosting and pooping a lot. Um, and any American citizen could seize an island for the purposes of taking its guano. And the Americans seized a lot of islands this way. Most of them have since been subsequently been, you know, sort of handed back to the nearby countries. But some remain in American possession. For example, a Midway Atoll was a, an island that was seized on behalf of guano, even though I don't think it actually had a lot of guano. Are we running out from of the phosphorus today? Well, that's a that's a 
subject of, of heated um, d debate right now, you know, in the current moment, some, some people say, some experts say, um, you know, that the, that the, we could have reached peak phosphorus or we're going to reach peak phosphorus in the not too distant future where actual, you know, the rock that you mine, we've sort of mined out the best stuff, the most concentrated sources of phosphorus. We're going to be mining rock that's less and less, um, got less and less phosphorus in it. And we're going to have to mine more and more of it. So some, some experts argue, you know, we're already looking at it at a shortage and others say, no, it's quite a long way away, um, you know, and new sources are being found. So I, I don't think that people should panic that we're going to run out of phosphorus. I think a much more immediate problem is, and we're seeing this um, already, very serious impacts from dumping all that phosphorus onto our fields and letting it run into our waterways. So where do we find the phosphorus today? the big uh, deposits are in Morocco and in the Western Sahara, actually, which is a disputed territory that's held by Morocco quite probably illegally. But I just read the other day, and I, uh, I'm not 100% I'm not, sure it's true, that, there, that there's been some new deposits found in Norway. Oh, I see. Okay. That's more closely to Per. What do you say about that? Well, I think it's the same, I would say. Uh, the origin of the phosphorus in Finland uh, or more, is, and more or less the same as you have in Sweden. So it has been known, but the thing is, it's very deep down. The cost to mine that phosphorus, both out of a mining perspective and a sustainability perspective, meaning the impact on the environment will be huge. So I doubt that they easily get the permits. We do see that the cost for buying phosphorus increased even before the Ukraine war. We know that China closed their border of phosphorus in, in, in 20, 2021. And that created directly an effect for Sri Lanka because they were supplying phosphorus through their state budget and handed out the fertilizers to the farmers so they could produce food. But suddenly the state couldn't afford it anymore. And now, I think this is the first, I would say, victim of the challenge we face today, how we are managing the phosphorus. The social disorder in Sri Lanka is now for real. The economy is really very bad due to this food crisis. And the consequence of not using phosphorus in Sri Lanka and natural fertilizer was a cut in half in food production. Elizabeth, you... you wrote in the article also about the consequences there in the US and, and you went to, to see how you have people in activism of peace cycling. Can you tell more about that? Yeah, so we, just like, you know, birds excrete a lot of phosphorus, so do we, you know, what most of the phosphorus that we, we consume in the course of you know, just eating these crops that have been um doused in phosphorus we just excrete that again and a lot of it the majority of it comes out in our urine and so i went to visit um this uh basically nonprofit group that's trying to push this idea of pea cycling where you would recycle um pea and use that as fertilizer liquid fertilizer and um and that that's phosphorus and nitrogen both we are you know, excreting a lot of phosphorus and a lot of nitrogen 
and both are essential nutrients for plants. Um, and why are we just wasting that? I think it's a very, you know, a very interesting idea. The logistics turn out to be complicated because, um, you know, pea is quite heavy, you know, most of it's water. So that is a, a, a logistical challenge, but as a fertilizer, it's extremely effective. Well, uh, Per, uh, if uh, we go into solution and, and the work you are doing, and, and do you see how we can feed the planet without uh, poisoning it? First, we need to understand that we need to start to recirculate, recycle the phosphorus. We're literally, to be honest, having the process running under our feet in our sewage streams, coming to our sewage plants. And of course, we should not focus on building new wastewater treatment plants. We should build resource plants instead. We are all having a problem in legislation in many countries in the world that we're not allowed to use what we extract from the wastewater. So that needs to be changed. Even if there is now technique available that you can produce a phosphate or phosphorus or even of a higher quality, higher purity without contaminants than uh, as a recycled region. And I know there is, as an example, in some island in the Pacific, they succeeded with taking away the plastic waste from the streets of the island because they gave plastic a value. And suddenly all people started to collect plastics. The same with phosphorus. If we are allowed to use the phosphorus with the high quality we can produce, it will give a good investment and of course then enabling resource plants. Our company has developed those solutions. And we started already, to be honest, in 1881 with phosphorus, not with the innovation, but then we brought back latrines from the inner city of Stockholm to the surrounding farms. Today, we have developed chemical circular processes that can extract the phosphorus and they can also extract the nitrogen. So we can take more than 95% of the phosphorus and more than 95% of the nitrogen from the reactor water and directly produce a nitrogen fertilizer. And now the UN, or I would say Professor Mark Sutton, uh, has stated uh, or named our innovation as the white nitrogen. Black through fossil fuels, green electricity, nitrogen recycled. So our solutions in hand, but policymakers, please make sure that we are allowed to use it. When you wrote the article about uh, solutions for the way further on? Well, it's, it's a really, um, you know, difficult problem. Certainly, you know, recycling human um, waste is, is, you know, part of everyone's sort of playbook of how you could re recover some of this phosphorus and nitrogen before they hit, um, you know, our aquatic systems. But I should also mention that a lot of uh, phosphorus and nitrogen are being excreted by animals, by livestock. So then we have, you know, a tremendous problem there. It, those, those, that waste is not running through sewage treatment plants for obvious reasons. And how are we going to, um, you know, deal with that? Um, so, you know, people have always put animal waste, you know, back on the fields. Traditionally, that's how things were recycled, you know, um, but now we have these huge 
um, basically industrial agriculture, we can't uh, even get rid of the stuff as it were. Uh, it's being produced in one part of the world where maybe it could be used in a different part of the world, but it, as a result, it's just being sort of mishandled often. And you know, even though there are uh, in many in many parts of the world, in many parts of the world, I'm sure there aren't. In the U.S., there are you know laws that supposedly regulate you know how you are handling the waste from these huge um, concentrated agri you know feeding lots. These just huge, huge um, operations where many, many pigs or or cows are concentrated. Um, but they are those laws tend to be observed in the breach you know and there's a heavy rain or whatever and a lot of it is getting washed into the waterways and um you know there's huge huge problems in um for example um the lake erie in the u.s um where there's uh, a lot of feeding lots along a river that leads into Lake Erie and they're seeing increasing algae blooms um, in Lake Erie as a result of that animal waste washing into the uh, lake. Uh, so we talk uh, uh, connected to the food system for the for the future and and it also uh, involves a system thinking uh, model or how how do you build the system there involved all these stakeholders uh, to find a, a common ground uh, how to find solution and uh, is the farmer involved in the dialogue pair or elizabeth i can start the farmer need to be involved in a sustainable circular system. Everybody's part of creating it together. And I totally agree with Elizabeth. Focusing on recycling from the wastewater plant is maybe just one third of the problem. But it's something we can do today. The other two thirds is that we need to find new ways of working. Precision farming is one of the things that can secure that the phosphorus doesn't end up in the rivers. So the way how we manage our farms will be important. But we have developed a solution that can catch fish poo in the ocean, fish poo and the fish sludge from fish farms. And I know that FIO has stated that we need to triple the amount of food that produce in our oceans. But we can't then continue wasting our phosphorus from the fish farms. We therefore need to collect the fish poo and we have succeeded with solving it. We already now producing energy from the fish poo that we are collecting in Norway and are now developing a system to both produce phosphorus and nitrogen from the fish poo. So yes, there is solutions for increased fish production in our oceans. There are solutions for wastewater treatment plants, but we need to work together with the farmers to develop, develop the farming. I think that is very, very important. You know, one of the one of the problems is, which is a very, very classic, you know, waste management problem is you're, you're taking something, you're dispersing this, this phosphorus across the landscape, right? So you're taking it from a place where it's highly concentrated and in rock and has been sitting there for tens of millions of years, you know, undisturbed. And then you're dispersing it across the landscape and sort of, you know, the laws of entropy are taking over is very, very difficult then uh, to, to collect it all again, you know, and that's sort of the 
uh, story of modern life. You know, we, we just sort of throw things across the landscape and then, you know, we're shocked, shocked that they sort of come back to haunt us. You know, we, we see this over and over again and we're seeing this with plastic pollution, which, you know, we, we just um, are constantly producing things, chucking them onto the landscape in the form of, of waste or, or, or even as fertilizer. And then, you know, we don't like the consequences and then we have to you know, sort of try to collect everything again, but that's quite difficult because, um, you know, it's, it's uh, now been, you know, dispersed to millions of different places. You know, it's just, it's just a, a, a sh the organizational problem is extremely difficult. Per, uh, we talk both about uh, phosphorus and nitrogen. Uh, can you explain the two fertilizers problem? First, when you are producing your nitrogen fertilizer, maybe 98% is today produced by incinerating natural gas. It's a direct carbon emission. Nitrogen is, of course, you can say the boost, the turbine fuel production, uh, so you need it. But the problem is how the nitrogen then is emitted back into the atmosphere. It doesn't just uh, be emitted back to the atmosphere as a nitrogen oxide. In many cases, it is emitted back as a laughing gas emissions. So you have a double or multi-double negative climate potential here. So the nitrogen is needed to increase the food production, but it creates huge environmental challenges. And then when it ends up in our water together with phosphorus, you create these algae blooms. And when the algae dies, they create these seabeds. And we talked about the Atlantic before. We can also talk about the Baltic Sea. I think that's, that's the inner sea that are, are, are already lost or close to be lost, negatively affected by the combination of all nitrogen and phosphorus and the increasing temperature. The amount of dead seas in the Baltic is bigger than Denmark uh, and is growing. So in the end, it will be no more fishing in the Baltic if we don't stop working the way we do. So then, of course, the phosphorus are needed because phosphorus is the basic ingredient for life. And there are a lot of phosphorus around us, so we, 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 we will need to try to recycle the phosphorus in our land already today. But in order to produce more food, especially for the probably 10 billion people that we are, might be on the planet, we need, we need more food and we need to eat and consume differently. We need to understand the, that consumption also needs to be changed. When you talk about solutions, Per, and uh, how, how advanced are you in, do you have a plant in, in, on the market already or? Our first two phosphorus factories that we now are waiting the environmental permit for, the one first in Germany and the second in Sweden, uh, but they will be followed by maybe tens or more just in Europe. So hopefully before 2030, we will have a lot of them already up and running in Europe. I will say that all megacities in the future, because there we have, we'll have the high concentration of nutrients and megacities. I think if I understand it correctly, we will have something like eight megacities already by 2100. They will not be able to supply themselves with food if they can't bring back 
the phosphorus to where the food are produced. So they will be our future mind. So I think we can hopefully see a revolution uh, that we don't need to mind the way we do it today. today. Instead, we can almost become self-sufficient with recycled phosphorus. And Elizabeth, uh, what was the reaction of your article? Uh, has it been any feedback? I think it's a problem that people were not really aware of. So I think that um, it got a response in the sense of, of people saying, wow, I, you know, I, I didn't realize this, but I, I don't see you know, high levels of the US government uh, reacting to it. The relationship of geopolitics and climate change impacts on food is a dangerous one. The other week, UN were very clear. They can no longer support people that are hungry with food. They can just support people that are starving. So the food crisis is already here and, and it will grow. And it is the poorest people that will be affected. I know that Professor Rockström, together with many other scientists, uh, this summer launched a new version of the planetary boundaries. Now with a focus on just transition. And it's important to state, we need to feed the whole planet, not just the already rich part that can afford to buy food at higher prices. Elizabeth? No, I think it's a huge, you know, it's a, a huge, obviously huge issue going forward on so many levels, you know, our, the, you know, what's often referred to as the green revolution, the um, new plant varieties, um, rice and wheat in particular that were bred in the 60s and that are now very, very widely grown. Um, and that, you know, many people credit with having averted terrible hunger in the 70s and 80s as our population has really doubled since the 60s, more than doubled uh, the global population. But those crop varieties are very uh, nutrient hungry. They need a lot of inputs. And this has created also, many people would argue, this sort of two-tiered economic system, those who can afford the inputs, those who can't afford the inputs. So, you know, looking forward to, to feeding a world, as, as Pear said, of, of, of quite likely, quite possibly 10 billion people, uh, we need some pretty a pretty radical rethink of how we do things now who is doing that radical rethink and how you you know um implement changes that many very smart people you know would agree we need that is you know that becomes this geopolitical question that's that becomes you know even harder to answer than some of these scientific questions thank you elizabeth and per for today's talk in transformers thank you thanks a lot thanks a lot I will continue the discussion of the topic of food production, the use of phosphorus and nitrogen here in Transformers. Stay tuned. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more, visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.